The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Well, let's now go to God's Word, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we are, if you're following along with us, you, you may have feel that we skipped a little bit. You would expect us to be finishing up chapter 1, which we should, but that portion of Scripture that we're going to skip over for today um, is actually going to be our Easter passage in April, and so we are going to start, we're going to start today in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You can follow along there with us. Let's hear God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, as we wrapped up last week, we learned the order, uh, in order to be blessed by God, God must do something on our behalf. In order to receive His favor and blessing and salvation, God must act. He must initiate with us. And so God's work is, in fact, gracious. It's unearned. It, de- it depends not so much on our record or our character, but on the record and character of Jesus who redeemed us from our sin by his death on the cross on our behalf. And so this great theme of grace that we find in our passage today is that Christians are saved. Christians are saved by grace. And I imagine as you come to church on a Sunday morning, you are not surprised to hear that the Christian message is one of salvation. This is what you come to expect, that Christians talk about being saved that the message that the Bible speaks of is one of salvation. Christians often use this word saved a lot. It's a, it's a shorthand way of talking about salvation, what God has done for us. But it's often used much more than it is understood. And that is what I'm going to communicate to you today. I would say that Christians often have a much too narrow view of what it means to be saved. Christians often talk about salvation and the work that God has done for them in, in a too small view, and too narrow view. For instance, when answering the question, what does it mean to be saved? We might answer it with a passage like this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We might say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Or passages like this that are more familiar maybe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And by small view, I do not mean a bad view, for these are the the heart of the gospel message, that we are saved by God. But our understanding of salvation is often too small, it's too narrow. Generally, when Christians talk about 
being saved, we do so in the past tense. We say, oh, I was saved. I was saved in college. I was saved at a Billy Graham uh, revival. I was saved at a DC Talk concert. Anybody? No one? Okay. But when the New Testament talks of being saved, when the New Testament talks of our salvation, specifically in our passage here, it it talks about it in a much fuller sense, a much richer sense. It incorporates not just the past events, but it incorporates uh, the way that God has saved us, the way that God is presently saving us, and the way that God promises to save us. And so salvation is not just an event that happened a long time ago that we talk about, in an event that happened in college or at VBS or in a conversation with our parents or with a mentor or pastor. It is something that is hap- it is it is the work of God, past, present, and future. So a too narrow view of the gospel tends to make Christian faith too private, too personal. We talk about the work that God has done for us. So what does it mean to be saved? Well, I once was on this trajectory of going to hell, but now I am on the trajectory of going to heaven. And that's where we stop. And it's not that that is wrong. It is very right, but is much too narrow. This passage gives us a big gospel view. This passage broadens our understanding of what salvation really is. And it's beautiful. And it's much more than just the the rescue, the get out of hell free card. It is all of God's work for us and his purposes for us wrapped up in the work and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have by grace through faith. And so let me say this just as a pause. If you, if all that you know, all that you know about God is that he loves you and that his son Jesus died for your sins and you trust in him, then you have been rescued. Then you have been sealed with his love forever. And for the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so when I say that this view is too narrow or too small, it does not mean it is insufficient for you. It is very good. But our desire is not just to know the least amount. Our desire is not that we would know the least amount about God and His plans for us, but to know more about Him. And by knowing more about Him, it would be fueled by this increasing love for Him. And that as we grow in the knowledge of God's great plan of salvation, we'd understand His story And in understanding his story, we would see his his love for us. And in understanding his love for us, we would worship him. And in worshiping him, we would bring everything in our life under his care. And we'd be changed in every area of our life from one degree to another of being like Christ. We'd be shaped more and more into becoming like Christ. And that is God's plan for us. To the praise of his glory and for our joy. And so we should not ask questions like, well, what is the least amount of knowing I should know to be saved? We should say, I want to know God. I want to know him because I love him. And Paul shows us he expands our view. He broadens our understanding. And he brings us into the full knowledge of what it means to be truly saved, and it's wonderful. So if we want to step out, step out of a small view of the gospel, we need to broaden our view. And our passage shows us how to broaden our view of the gospel, how to have the big gospel view, and that's what this is about. Here's what it shows us first. First, a big view of the gospel acknowledges our condition apart from the mercy of God. Before we can understand and embrace our identity in Christ, we must first understand and embrace our identity apart from Christ. Verse 1 to 3 describes the kind of person before they are saved by Jesus in the following ways. Spiritually dead, 
disobedient, ruled by evil, objects of God's wrath, walking in sin, destined for hell like everyone else. You're excited you came to church today, aren't you? Becoming a Christian is not merely accepting the truth of Jesus as our Savior. It's accepting the truth about who we are as needy sinners. And interestingly, knowing who, no one who is spiritually dead really knows that they're spiritually dead. No one in a spiritually dead condition is aware that they are spiritually dead. Self-deception is a human trait that we all have. We, we trick ourselves. We convince ourselves. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? So spiritually dead people, they don't know that they're spiritually dead. Those who are walking in a way uh, of sin don't always know that they're walking in that direction. Psychologists call this effect the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a real thing, and scientists and Cornell study this. It's a cognitive bias where people who are really bad at something think that they're really good at it. And in fact, as they do this thing, they do it with full confidence, thinking that they are really, really good. You ever hear someone sing who's like really bad, but they think they're awesome? They've made a television show out of it. And this is, this is a real thing. They're not tricking people. They're not pretending. They don't know that they're bad. They don't know that they can't sing. I mean, here's another example. A vast majority of people uh, give themselves an above-average rating for how good they are at driving. Most of you think you're good drivers, but you're not. I mean, studies show that actually you're not. Most people, the vast majority, are not good drivers. But we all think that, well, I'm better than average, but we, we aren't. Studies show that 61% of people indicate that when asked, they would receive constructive criticism really well. Right? Most of you would that. Do you receive constructive criticism well? Most of us say, yeah, I think I do. Well, in fact, 30% of people actually do receive constructive criticism well. If you're offended by that, you're experiencing the Dunger-Kruger effect. <laughs> so... We don't always know when we're bad. We don't always know that we're failing. And here Paul is telling us this is what it's like before Jesus. We're destined for hell. We're objects of God's wrath. We are walking according to the spirit of the world. And we don't even know it. And we think we're okay. If you want to know what it feels like to be wet, don't ask a fish. If we want to know the good news of God's eternal plan to rescue and save his people, we must know the truth of our neediness apart from him. We need God's word to, to, to tell us. And that's why Paul is saying, you wouldn't know this apart from me telling you, but if you want a bigger view of the gospel, you need to know what it's like to be apart from Christ as a needy sinner. You know, the Bible says that by nature we are opposed to God. We are antagonists in his story. We did not realize it. We were, as the passage tells us, dead in our trespasses and sins. A mortician is able to, to prepare a de deceased person for viewing and position them in a familiar and relaxed pose. But in that person, there is no life. And the same is true spiritually that Paul says about us. We can position ourselves in a place of looking relaxed and looking put together, but there is no life in us. There is no spiritual life in us. There's no health in us whatsoever. We are worse than sick and wounded. The Bible says that we're dead in our sin. We followed three things, as, and all of these are startling. Paul says, the writer of this says, 
We've followed three things. We've followed the course of the world. We've followed the prince and power of the air. We've followed the desires of our body and mind. We were unknowingly devoted in, devoted followers in heart, mind, and soul to the value system and worldview that dominates an anti-God reality. And that's every single one of us apart from Christ. Like mosquitoes, we are constantly attracted to the very things that destroy us. We receive God's blessings, and we use them for selfish gain, and we don't even know it, but we are walking away from God. In fact, we are running from Him. Paul uses very plain terms here to speak of our spiritual condition apart from Christ. Our greatest problems are not that our personalities or parents or jobs or genes have failed us. It is that we are spiritual rebels guilty of moral and spiritual treason and locked in our own prison of darkness. The Bible tells us it's all pervasive. The Bible tells us that sin is all pervasive. The very nature has twisted us. We are twisted in this nature of sin. And in fact, it spreads throughout the whole entire human race. And then, and then likely after Paul tells us this in very plain language, it's, it's, I mean, it is sobering. It's calming. You could, it's quiet in this room. Do you feel it? To hear these things, it's, it's painful, and Paul speaks of it in such plain language. And then likely the best two words put together in all of the Bible, the best two words in all of Scripture, likely, at the start of verse 4, and those two words are, go on, you could, you could tell me, what are these two words in verse 4, the first two words? But God. but God, the best phrase possibly in all of Scripture after hearing such news like this is, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. What a great start. But God. But God, what a great phrase. Isn't that an awesome verse? And I'm thinking as I study this, I'm thinking, Paul, you should just start with that, brother. You should start with that. Start verse 1. God is rich in mercy. He's seated us with Christ. He's raised us from the grave. Why do you start like this? What is up with verse 1 to 3? Why do you get people's attention like that? But it's there for a really good reason. You see, Paul knows that the only way that we can be brought into appreciate the great gift of God's grace is if we first understand why we need it in the first place. You see, if we want to understand the good news, the gospel, we have to understand the bad news. We have to understand the bad news of our nature and our sin and the reality in which God finds us in the first place, broken and and dead in sin and unable to actually do anything to please God, anything to work for our own salvation. And not only are we dead, we are actually wired and geared to, to to rebel against everything that God has given to us. The gospel must sober us before it satisfies us. And that's what this has done. It sobers us. To reject it is to reject reality. To reject our nature apart from Christ is to ignore the wisdom of God and to tell God, God, I know more than you. You are wrong. I am right. And Paul, in such common language, says this is what it's like to be apart from Christ and His mercy. It's sobering, but then he satisfies because the gospel satisfies. A big view of the gospel will always sober us, but now it must 
it will always satisfy us. Moving to our second point is that a big view of the gospel believes that God must do for us what we cannot do for uh, either for ourselves or for one another. The best two words in the Bible, but God. But God. Paul's point is clear. We were dead, but we're given new life. Not through our kindness, not through our endurance, not through our record, but God gives us new life in Christ by His grace. I want to read verse 4 to 9 one more time, and I just want to read it a little slower, and I just want you to think about it. I want you to follow along. I want you to read in your Bible, and I just want you to look at this. Verse 4 to 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, and it doesn't tell you a single thing to do. Let me just tell you what God is like. Let me tell you what He has done. Let me tell you the answer to all of your problems. The key to every sorrow. The solution to every wound and pain. And Paul can't use enough descriptive words to show us how much God loves us, how much He is gracious to us. See, being saved from punishment is only half of it. And our view of salvation is often too narrow in the sense that we think being saved means that we are rescued from hell. And that's true. And that's a very, if, if that's all it was, we are fortunate. But there's more. It's actually only half of it. And it's probably not even the better half of it. We are forgiven of our sins and given new life. We are rescued, we are rescued from hell and we are given life. We are saved and then we are seated with Christ. We are, cur- we are cured twice. How are we cured twice? Once for our sin, meaning we are forgiven. And second, we are cured, we are given the power over sin to now walk in newness of life, growing in grace, increasing in righteousness, living a life free from just bondage, but now given the righteousness of God. We are saved not just from hell, but we're saved to Christ. We're saved to a new life. We're a new creation. You know, to explain this real-life analogy, to explain this a little better, we use this real-life analogy of Jesus resurrecting from the dead his friend, Lazarus. It's a powerful illustration for us. Think about this. Lazarus, although he was dead, he was unable to hear anything, for he was physically dead. Christ announced good news to Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come out. And at once, Lazarus stood up and he came out. And although he was dead, Christ made him alive. He resurrected him from the grave. And Lazarus rose and he took off his grave clothes that he was in for days and he put on new clothes. And later that evening, Lazarus sat down with Jesus 
and shared a meal and fellowship with him and grew and continued to walk with Christ and continued to grow in body and in soul. He continued to, to now live a life free from that death. And you see here, Lazarus was saved twice. He had a double blessing. He was cured twice. One, he was risen from the dead. But then the second blessing he receives is, now, now you have a life with me. Now you can walk with me. Now you are free from the bondage of, of shame and guilt of that former life where you were dead. Now you have new life. And so it is with us. It is the best thing about being saved. If, if the best thing about being saved is that you are not going to hell anymore, you have a small view of the gospel. If that's the best there is, it's not bad, but there's more. What Jesus did physically for Lazarus, he does spiritually for us. He forgives us. He takes away punishment that is due to us. He takes away the wrath of God upon, and puts it on himself for our sins. But then he gives us new life and the power of his spirit. And one would not be good without the other. If you're, if you're given new life, but you can't live that new life, then it's not good. If you're given a new life, but you're still guilty, then that's not good. And God gives us both. The descriptive language of Paul is meant to broaden our view of salvation from just thinking about what we've been saved from, which is punishment and guilt and hell, and know what we are saved to. We are saved to share in the triumph of Jesus over sin. We're raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. This language is strange, I admit. This language is strange. What he's saying, he made us alive in Christ. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is really strange. It sounds like future events. All these things that he's doing, it sounds like something that he will do in the future. But Paul is clear that these are actually past events that continue into the future and continue all into eternity. What's happening here? Here is what is happening. You, you may still see yourself from the perspective of your present humanity and sin. You're a Christian, you know Jesus, you trust in him, but you still view yourself in, the, in a perspective of your present weakness and frailty and, and sin. But God has so secured your eternal destiny that he compresses all of eternity into your present reality. In Christ, by grace, you are the possessor of the glories of heaven right now. I know it's strange. In Christ, you have all the love of the Father despite your present, your present situation as an ever-imperfect creature. I know it's hard to imagine. But this is what Paul is wanting us to see. And how this happened, Paul, he repeats himself three times in verse 5 and in verse 7 and in verse 8. He says, by grace you have been saved, by the riches of his grace. And then he says again, by grace you have been saved. If you want to be a faithful Christian who follows Jesus, I can't tell you every doctrine that's important. I can't tell you all the things that are essential. I can't give you a list of all the things that you need to give yourself to study. But I can give you the first three. And they are grace, grace, and grace. I don't know all of them, but the first three have to do with grace. And Paul repeats himself here in verse 5, 7, and 8. It is grace and grace and grace. Why does he do this? Why does God do this? Why does God bless us this way? Why does he compress all of the eternal blessings that are in Christ and he makes that a reality for us right now? 
Well, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And we say, well, one day I will be with him. No, you're there now. You have him now. He has taken up residence in you. He has resurrected you. The same power that has risen Christ from the dead and given him new life is in you right now for those who believe. It is not one day. It is now. Well, one day I'll be free from the, the, the guilt and shame that I experience as a, just a sinner. No, you're free from that now. The power of sin has been broken. Your guilt has been removed. It's been placed on Christ and nailed to the cross. And he, and he has resurrected from the grave. And sin has no power over you. Why does God do this? In one sense, his reasons are not explained. Paul insists that God has done this for us simply because he's a gracious God who delights in giving mercy to unworthy sinners. Why does God do this? Because this is what he's like. He's gracious, he's merciful, and he likes doing it. His mercy is rich, his love is great, his kindness is immeasurable. These are the words that Paul uses. His, his, his mercy is rich, his love is great, and his kindness is immeasurable. Paul has lingered long and lovingly on God's amazing goodness. He's, he's thinking about it, and he's trying to tell us what it's like to know God's love and mercy. And it's almost like he can't tell it to us enough. And so once we become a Christian, the natural question is, well, now what? Now I have this. What, what do I do now? And, and, after, and considering all this grace and mercy and blessing from God, Paul elaborates on this concept of grace in verse 8, and not 8 through 10 by ending this section by saying that we are God's workmanship, saved for good works. Paul isn't suddenly making a switch from salvation by grace to salvation by works. Rather, he means to show us that as the grace of God is received and enjoyed in our hearts, it has a natural overflowing effect. Paul knows that even though we enjoy the gift of God's grace, our sinful hearts take the good benefits of the gospel and the good benefits of his grace, and we use it for selfish purposes. We take our salvation, we enjoy it, we receive his good news, and then we use those blessings for ourselves. And thus making us once again, giving us a view way too small of the gospel. And so we move into our final point in our passage. A big view of the gospel will always be outward focused because of an overflowing supply of the grace of God. Those who trust in Jesus for salvation receive forgiveness for their sin and healing for all of their brokenness. Jesus grants us eternal life. He makes us heirs to his, all of his riches in heaven, and he brings us into the family of God where we enjoy his, his uh, presence and his encouragement and all of his grace. And then Jesus says, then he shows us a new way to live. We receive all that, and then he says, now here's how I want you to live. In light of all that I have done, because of all that I have done, I want you to live in this new way. So rather than working, our, working for our own salvation, which he so clearly tells us is impossible to do, we are in fact God's workmanship. We know verses 8 through 9 really well. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. It is not of your own work so that no one may boast. But we never read verse 10. For we are created in Christ for good work. We are his workmanship. 
There is this beautiful spiritual balance here. Good works does not save us, but when the gospel changes our hearts, it will overflow into acts of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is interesting. He talks, he's talked about this before, if you remember. Last week, we talked about God's work beforehand, what He has done before the creation of the world, how He predestined us unto salvation by His grace. And so all these things did, God did before we were born. But here again, He reminds us what else He did. He planned that we would do good work, not for our salvation, but as an overflow of His grace to us. Workmanship, let's talk about that. That word, this illustration, it's an intriguing illustration for how we would see our time here on earth as Christians, as recipients of His grace. You know, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be, it's going to be perfect, for lack of a better word. It will be void of any sin and temptation. It will be amazing. Every tear, will be, will, every tear that was shed will be wiped clean. It even says that, that children will play with poisonous snakes and children will play with a lion and they won't be afraid. We will live in peace with God, peace with one another, and in peace with creation. It's going to be perfect. It is going to be amazing, spotless and breathtaking. But the earth here and now is His workshop. So the new heaven and the new earth is the showroom. This is the showroom where everything is perfect and on display and spotless and breathtaking. But the earth now is the workshop. And you and I, his church, are his workers. Showing the world what God can do and what God will do. The church is God's portrait gallery who gather together and show the world God's immeasurable grace. So as the world looks at us, they will see a picture of what that final showroom will be. Maybe we should take another pause in the service and just repent again (laughs) and ask God for forgiveness again. How are we doing? The new heaven, the new earth is God's showroom and his workshop is the earth and the church are his workers to show the world this is what the grace of God looks like and this is what his immeasurable grace will do for you. We do have a role. And just because your salvation is the result of God's grace and unmerited does not mean that we are indifferent recipients of his mercy. God is on the move. He is doing His work to restore all things. And such a vision of God's love for us from this passage, passage should, inspired, should inspired awed worship. How amazing a Savior we have in our God. And it should inspire yet another response. And that is a humbled yet confident embrace of our personal role as a people engaging in His mission. God, I want to participate with you in what you're doing. I want to proclaim this good news. I want your good, your gospel to overflow in my life into acts of compassion and love. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, Christians are not just to be a sign and foretaste of ultimate salvation. They are to be a part of the means by which God makes this happen in both the present and the future. God does not need us, but he has chosen to act with us. He has chosen by his, his wisdom and his means of bringing about his plans to use the church. 
And, and don't hear me wrong on this, but I want to say a bold statement. The church is the hope of the world. And I don't mean that Jesus is not, that his work is not sufficient. He doesn't need us, but by his mercy and, and, and all sufficiency has chosen to use his workmanship, his workers, his church, as a means of proclaiming the gospel and, and, and expressing the immeasurable riches of God's mercy. It is people in this room, it are those who know and love Jesus that will proclaim this news and God will use that faithfulness to bring people to himself. We as, as Jesus' disciples have the amazing privilege of participating in God's work according to this passage. It, it constitutes the very center of our salvation. Saved for holiness. We are ransomed by his blood to, to be his workers, to be his people living on mission. So the grace of God changes our hearts and it overflows into acts of compassion and love. The grace of God is not meant to lead us into a passive life or a life unchanged, but calls us into a life intent on arranging every portion of our life in such a way that stands amazed at God's amazing grace and gives ourselves to the flourishing of God's purposes for others. How could it not when we see that we were at a time like everyone else, objects, children of God's wrath, walking in the ways according to the world, there is nothing that separates us from the worst of sinners other than the grace of God. And so when we look at people and lifestyles and choices and ideas and attitudes and pursuits and ambitions that are sinful, and our first instinct is, what is wrong with them? There is nothing that separates us from the worst of sinners other than the grace of God. That draws us to compassion. It draws us to love. It draws us to rearranging our life and everything that we have, all the assets and capital and privilege that we have to say, God, how can I be your worker? To bring this good news, the immeasurable riches of your grace to this person. And Paul tells us, now you're asking the question, for the very reason you exist. This is why you were born. This is why you were born again. To proclaim the excellencies of his grace. Have you found yourself consumed by a small view of the gospel? It's likely that you live a private life. It's likely that you keep your religion, your faith to yourself. It's likely that you don't talk a lot about what God's doing in your life. And you don't get involved in people's business. It's likely that you just you look at other people who are in sin and say, why don't they just get their act together and, and trust in Jesus like I did and everything would be better. This is why we gather. Because we do. We, have a, we, are, we are susceptible to an overconsumption of a small gospel view. You and me both. And that's why we get together. We gather to remember the big gospel story. That God is holy that we have sinned, that Jesus saves us, that, God, that he blesses us to be a blessing, sends us into our world armed with the gospel truth to be a blessing to others. This is what we do every Sunday. It's not just a cute order of worship. It's not just something clever. We're not trying to do diff different church. We're actually trying to remember because we're forgetful. We're trying to remember the gospel story and linger long and lovingly on the reality that God moves towards us when we were the worst of sinners. 
and remembering that, that we are the worst of sinners and God pursued us, and so, so we move towards the worst of sinners. Giving them hope in Christ and speaking truth and love and befriending them and inviting them to the table and letting them know in so many words and actions that there's nothing that separates them uh, because of what they have done more, worse than what we have done. We leave here cultivating habits in our life that are a joyful overflow of the gospel story. And this will renew us inwardly and it will, and our attitudes towards others will follow. Isn't this great news? Isn't this a bigger gospel view, a bigger story? We come, we remember, we reorient our hearts and minds minds around it, and then we go into our life asking God to give us opportunity to show people His great love. Let's do that together. Let's pray.